It's time for security now. Steve Gibson is here. A mistaken Windows update? Steve explains. We'll also talk about LastPass. Now that more details are coming out, it's really kind of a stunning hack. Signal says ta-ta to the UK. Well, it will if the UK does something bad. And believe it or not, the NSA's security recommendations, they're pretty good. All that and more coming up next on Security Now. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 912, recorded Tuesday, February 28th, 2023. The NSA at home. Security Now is brought to you by Collide. Collide is a device trust solution that ensures that if a device isn't secure, it can't access your apps. It's zero trust for Okta. Visit collide.com slash security now and book a demo today. Thanks for listening to this show as an ad-supported network. We are always looking for new partners with products and services that will benefit our qualified audience. Are you ready to grow your business? Reach out to advertise at twit.tv and launch your campaign now. It's time for Security Now, the show we cover the latest in security with the most important guy in this building right now, Mr. Steve Gibson. And he's not even in the building. Hey! Hey! GRC.com. Again? Yeah, it's good to see you. Yeah. Time Um, once again to talk about how bad the world is. Oh, we squeaked one more episode in uh, on this last day of February. Of course, February ended early, so... You know, that's what made it uh, squeaky tight. <laughs> um, so we've got a bunch of questions in our new style that we're going to answer. And I really do wish that our audience had had heard you encounter our picture of the week for the first time. Oh, it's a belly laugh. Wow. It is. Every time I look at it, it cracks me up again. But we're first going to uh, answer some questions. What mistake did Windows Update make last week? What if you don't want to paste with formatting? What browser is building in a limited bandwidth VPN? What more did we just learn about LastPass's second breach? What uh, did Signal have to say to the UK about scanning its users' messages? What was just discovered hiding inside the Python package index repository? What proactive move has QNAP finally taken? Uh. What disastrous bug did SpinWrite's testers uncover last weekend in motherboard BIOSes? What amazingly useful best practices advice has the NSA just published for home users? Answers to all those questions and some additional thoughts will be yours before you know it (laughs) on this week's 912th episode, still going strong, of Security Now, titled The NSA at Home. Oh. Oh, that's going to be interesting. Hmm. Bring your NSA home with you. Yeah. And that last pass thing, holy cow, what a revelation. Uh, yeah. Um, th- finally, the gate gave us some details, and it's not good. Yep. It's uh, it's, <laughs> it's bad. It's very. Bad. I, you, you know, I had to, I had the feeling you don't you don't want these bad guys on your tail because I mean, I, yeah, no, no kidding. These this it's, was a very aggressive uh, attack. attack. They really knew yep. what they wanted. 
which is kind of does not bode well for those of us whose LastPass vaults are now in their hands. Yeah. I mean, they're, they were, they went after him. That wasn't some, you know, some script kitty accidentally found him. Anyway, we'll nope. get to that in a second. But first, we will. first, a word from our sponsor uh, and some really good folks I'm big fans of, Collide, K-O-L-I-D-E. It's a device trust solution that ensures that unsecured devices can't access your apps. This is the kind of thing, honestly, LastPass probably should have had. Collide has some big news. If you are an Okta user, I know you know Okta, we use it. Collide can get your entire fleet to 100% compliance. Wait a minute. I think I better explain that, huh? Collide patches one of the major holes in Zero Trust architecture, which is device compliance. I mean, this was what bit last pass. I mean, your identity provider only lets known devices log in apps, right? But just because a device is known doesn't mean it itself is in a secure state. In fact, plenty of the devices in your fleet probably should not be trusted. Maybe they're running on an out-of-date OS version, or maybe they've got unencrypted credentials lying around. Maybe they've got Plex <laughs> running on them. If a device is not compliant or isn't running the Collide agent, it can't access the organization's SaaS apps or their other resources. Let me say that again. If the device isn't running the Collide agent, it can't get in. The user can't log into your company's cloud apps until they fix the problem on their end. It's that simple. A device, here's an example. If, a, if an employee doesn't have an up-to-date browser, that happens all the time. Using end-user remediation helps drive your fleet to 100% compliance, and it's not on you, the IT team. That's what I love about Collide. Collide enrolls your end-users on your side as part of your overall defense. They do the work. They get the notification. Your browser needs to update. Here's how we do it. Here's why we do it, and it's done. Without uh, Collide, IT teams have no way to solve these compliance issues. You may not even know, right? or stop insecure devices from logging in. With Collide, you can set and enforce compliance across your entire fleet. And here you'll love this. It's cross-platform. Nowadays, it's not unusual. we got multiple operating systems. we got Mac. we got Linux. we got Windows. Collide works on all three. Collide is unique in that it makes device compliance part of the authentication process. So when a user logs in with Okta, Collide alerts them to compliance issues and says, stop if you've got uh, you know, problems. It prevents unsecured devices from logging in. That's going to make you feel a lot better. Frankly, there's a number of cases where this would have made me feel a lot better, like, well, we'll talk about it a little bit later. Collide is secure you can feel good about because Collide puts transparency and respect for users at the center of their product. To sum it up, Collide's method means fewer support tickets, less frustration from your users, and most importantly, 100% fleet compliance. It is a critical part of your Zero Trust network. Collide.com slash security now. Learn more. You can book a demo. K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash security now. And we thank them so much for their support. And I strongly encourage you to check out Collide. There's a lot of good stuff in there. We don't even have time to talk about it. Now, Steve... Talking about zero knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, Our picture so, of the week. <laughs> uh, 
What we have is a close-up photo that I presume someone took when they were checking out the smoke alarm on the home they just bought, um, or maybe the apartment they're renting. I don't know. Uh, so we've got a first alert smoke alarm uh, in close-up. You can over on the left. You see the little door. You can you can pull off probably to change the the nine volt battery and so forth. Anyway. The focus of this picture and the intent of taking a picture of the smoke alarm is that there's a uh, printer on the side is a field where you can indicate the date at which this was installed because, you know, that can be important. Like fire extinguishers have an expiration date. You need to, you know, uh, you know, change, change them out every so often. So this says installed on colon and then there's an underline where Clearly, you're intended to indicate the date of installation. <laughs> what we have instead written here is installed on the ceiling. <laughs> oh, boy. oh, that's oh boy. where it is? That, yeah. That's why I'm on a ladder? Okay, yeah, installed on the ceiling. Where I'm not sure where else you would install it, you know, on the wall? On on the floor, I, I don't. I think Joe, though, uh, inspection will reveal that it is in fact installed on the ceiling. No need to write that down. That's true. Yeah, you're looking at. Yeah, you don't want to leave that field blank. However, maybe the uh, maybe it won't work without something written there. So let's see. Exactly. What, what could they possibly? What were they installed what on? They want no, me to, it's obvious. They might, they want to know yeah. where it was installed. What's it installed? I had on? a hard time getting out of high school because of those. Multiple choice tests, but, you know, installed <laughs> oh, on the ceiling. Okay, good. Uh, so, okay. <laughs> Windows 11, anyone? Yesterday morning, I received the following email from a podcast listener and happens to be a SpinRight 6.1 tester. Jeremy wrote from Texas, hi, FYI, about Wednesday of last week, Windows 10 update offered to update me to Windows 11. Even though my HP AIO, that's an all-in-one, does not, he has in caps, qualify because it does not have the latest boot security level. I immediately switched over to GRC.com and downloaded In Control and set my PC to stay on Windows 10 22H2 with security updates. When I reloaded Windows Update, Windows 11 was no longer being offered. I thought I was safe. From Windows 11, he writes, since I didn't qualify, but I guess not. Just wanted to let you know to combine my efforts with others, if any. It's a reminder to be proactive rather than rely on assumptions. I've invested a lot of muscle memory in Windows 10 and don't think Windows 11 will offer me much. I don't know if it was a momentary glitch in one up in Win Update or a real offer since I got in control immediately. And he signed off regular listener and 6.1 tester, Jeremy in Texas. Well, also yesterday came the news that Microsoft had fixed a bug that was responsible for causing upgrade offers to unsupported PCs. Apparently, the issue came to light last Thursday for Microsoft, and it was quickly resolved. And the fix was then pushed out to affected devices over this past weekend. And this isn't the first time this has happened. Windows 11 22H2 was previously offered to Windows 11 insiders 
in the release preview channel, even when they were using ineligible devices. So uh, it was that after Microsoft was aware of this, but before they had pushed the update, that Windows users were reporting, many more than just Jeremy in Texas, via Reddit and Twitter, that their unsupported devices were, to their surprise, suddenly being offered Windows uh, 11 upgrades. So, so Microsoft confessed this, and they said, some hardware ineligible Windows 10 and Windows 11 version 21H2 devices were offered an inaccurate upgrade to Windows 11. These ineligible devices did not meet the minimum requirements to run Windows 11. Devices that experienced this issue were not able to complete the upgrade installation process. So apparently, some users with Windows 10, and even some who were using Windows 11 21H2, were surprised and, I presume, delighted by this news, whereas Jeremy and I were would have both been horrified by it. Uh, the impacted devices included those running Windows 11 21H2, Windows 10 21H2, and Windows 10 20H2. And as Microsoft indicated, some later portion of the upgrade process apparently recognized the mistake that had been made and aborted the upgrade. So, and remember that last month, Microsoft announced that it had started a forced rollout of Windows 11 22H2, uh, which is also known as the Windows 11 2022 update, to systems running Windows 11 21H2 which will be approaching their end of support date uh, later this year on October 10th, actually, is when it officially ends uh, in, of course, 2023. And this automated feature update rollout phase came after the Windows 11 2022 update also became available for broad deployment the same day to users with ineligible devices via Windows Update. Now, as it happens... The little Windows 10 machine I use weekly for Zooming this podcast to all of our listeners and Leo and Twit and everything, it's recently been updated, uh, been bugging me, I think the last maybe two or three weeks, to upgrade it to Windows 11. Since, you know, I only turn it on before the podcast and then off immediately afterward, I just say no. You know, but there's I hadn't a, got a wonderful program from a guy named Steve Gibson called In Control. What? <laughs> You don't use that, huh? Are you reading ahead? Oh, no, I'm not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to be surprised. I hadn't gotten around to running GRC's in-control oh, utility. okay. What do you know? To tweak the registry to get Microsoft to leave me alone. Now, re recall that in-control is the spiritual successor to Never 10. And, Leo, I still remember your laughter when you first heard that name. Uh, never 10. That's never right. 11 in this case. F yeah. off Microsoft. Yeah. Anyway, the expectation was that never 10 would be all that was ever needed. Yeah. Uh, but then Microsoft decided that Windows 10 would not be the last Windows after all. But then, uh, you know, so... so I, there was some tendency, there was, there was, you know, rather than create, I thought about creating Never 11. That's what people were asking for, you know, but then I'd have to do Never 12 and Never 13. I wonder if they would do Windows 13. I bet not. Anyway, uh, 
and then I have to keep changing the name. So instead, I switched to In Control, which now no longer at least has to change its name. Uh, as long as they leave this facility in place, I won't have to change it at all. So anyway, the point is that this story uh, from Jeremy and the fact that I kept, you know, just saying no, no, no every week finally prompted me to take action. Uh, and it worked beautifully. What do you know? Uh, initially, it was showing the upgrade offer up at the top of the Windows Update screen. So I ran in control and told her that I wanted to stay put where I was at Windows 10 22H2. So I clicked the button, it tweaked the registry, and that was that. Then I reran Windows Update, and the offer for Windows 11 was still there since it hadn't refreshed. So I asked Windows Update to recheck for any updates, and that refreshed the screen, and the Windows 11 offer disappeared. And I received what I remembered now when I was originally testing this thing, the little red asterisk notice up at the top of Windows Update, which says asterisk in red, the whole thing's in red, some settings are managed by your organization, which is, you know, yes, perfect. Leave me alone. So, you know, what we're essentially telling it is that, you know, the higher ups have decided that they're going to be in charge of upgrading. So Microsoft shouldn't be bothering us minions uh, with any of that. So uh, anyway, I just wanted to remind everybody that that exists because, you know, as Microsoft has said, they're going to get more insistent about this and no, thank you. Um, okay. Uh, oh, this next item is not security related at all, but Something, uh, some news popped up when I was looking for security stuff that um, I just wanted to make sure everyone was at least aware of. Um, I also have no sense for how large the audience for this might be, but the facility is one of my most used keystroke combinations. It is pasting from the clipboard without formatting. Um, I'm a big user of copy and paste for moving things around, but I almost never want to also copy and paste any of the text formatting of the source text, which may be present when I move it somewhere else to paste it. You know, it's quite annoying when I paste something and it jumps into the appearance that it had, typically not even correctly, when all I want is the textual content itself. You know, I want to lose the text metadata. So finally, a couple of years ago, after several years of annoyance, and I, I, would even, I was even doing things like using Windows Notepad as an intermediate stop where, you know, in, in order to force the dropping of the formatting, I would open Notepad, copy something that had formatting, paste it into Notepad, which can't hold formatting, so it would force it to be lost, and then I would copy that again and paste it into its destination. So I thought... Somebody must have fixed this problem. So I went Googling and I found a slick little utility that I've been using ever since known as Pure Text. And that's all it does. It sits in my system tray. It allows you to set any combination of shifts and an action key. I use Control-Alt-V rather than just Control-V uh, to perform a non-formatted textual clipboard paste. It's beautiful. Uh, also, you can assign a sound if you want. And I know lots of people don't like sounds. I love sounds. So it makes a nice little clunk sound to just confirm that I, you know, I got what I wanted. 
Anyway, I'm mentioning this because Windows Power Tools will completely separately from that soon be getting a new module called Paste as Plain Text. In other words, I'm not the only one, and or ne- neither was the guy Steve Miller who wrote this thing, the, the one I'm using. Um, uh, I'm As I said, I'm using pure text uh, both on my Windows 11 and my Windows 10 machines, but Power Tools won't run under Windows 7. You know, you got to use the Windows Store, and they won't let you do that from Windows 7. So I'll be sticking with pure text. But, you know, for what it's worth, if any of you else, you know, if anyone else has this problem, Windows Power Tools will soon be getting placed as paste as plain text, but stevemiller.net is the site. And this guy's been writing code since Windows 95. He's got stuff dating from then. Still some of it useful. So you might want to just check it out. Anyway, stevemiller.net. Okay. Nearly a year ago, last April, The Verge carried the news. Microsoft is adding a free built-in VPN to its Edge browser with a subhead Edge Secure Network, as it's being called. Actually, now they call it Microsoft Edge Secure Network, uh, will roll out, they said, as part of a security upgrade. They, They didn't say when, and it took like 10 months. But it now appears to finally be happening. It's going to be becoming available. Uh, Two days ago, on Sunday, Bleeping Computer posted, Microsoft Edge's built-in VPN functionality could soon begin rolling out to all users in the stable channel, with some users already getting access to the feature. And they linked to Microsoft's announcement of this. Um, It was the it was the original posting, and that's one thing's not clear about from a UI standpoint what'll be changing. But so here, here's what we know about what Microsoft is explaining that they'll be bringing to the Microsoft Edge Secure Network. They said encrypt your connection, encrypt your internet connection to help protect your data from online threats like hackers. When using Microsoft Edge Secure Network, your data is routed from Edge through an encrypted tunnel to create a secure connection. Even when using a non-secure URL that starts with HTTP, this makes it harder for hackers to access your browsing data on a shared public Wi-Fi network. We know, of course, that's true, and that's probably the the strongest use case for a, a uh, for using a VPN if you're not, you know, you using one to dial into your corporate network. Second feature helps prevent online tracking. Right. By encrypting your web traffic directly from Microsoft Edge, we help prevent your internet service provider from collecting your browsing data like details about which websites you visit. Third, keeps your location private. Online entities can use your location and IP address for profiling and sending you targeted ads. Microsoft Edge Secure Network lets you browse with a virtual IP address that masks your IP and replaces your geolocation with a similar regional address to make it more difficult for online trackers to follow you as you browse. And finally, is free to use. Get one gigabyte of free data every month when you sign into Microsoft Edge with your Microsoft account. A few early adopters will be in a data upgrade trial at the end of their 30-day trial period, the experience will reflect the not, the normal VPN gigabyte limits. I don't know what that last sentence meant. Okay, but 
Not surprisingly, my Edge browser doesn't have it yet. You know, I'm not in any advanced leading edge uh, mode. But under Edge's main menu, near the menu's bottom, you'll find current entries for read aloud and then more tools. And assuming that Edge's UI hasn't changed since this posting was last updated and the rest of it does look the same, there will appear a new secure network entry in between read aloud and more tools. Um, the other piece of interesting news is that this is being done in affiliation with our friends at Cloudflare. Microsoft wrote, Microsoft Edge Secure Network is a service provided in partnership with Cloudflare. Cloudflare is committed to privacy and collects a limited amount of diagnostic and support data acting as Microsoft's data subprocessor in order to provide the services. Cloudflare permanently deletes the diagnostic and support data collected every 25 hours. Now, they didn't say that Microsoft doesn't collect it and and hold, retain it. We don't know. But, there's, but they are saying Cloudflare is not keeping it, and presumably Microsoft is not either. They said to provide access, we store minimal support data and access tokens, which are only retained for the duration of the required service window. A Microsoft account is required to access Microsoft Edge Secure Network and is retained to keep track of the amount of Microsoft Edge Secure Network data that is used each month. This data retention is necessary to provide one gigabyte of free Microsoft Edge Secure Network service and to indicate when the data limit has been reached. So I don't really have any calibration on how quickly one gigabyte will be consumed. But that doesn't sound like much data for a month. I checked my phone, which, you know, I don't use very much for any heavy work because I'm always sitting in front of a computer. And, and I have the small Verizon plan, which is limited to two gigabytes a month. As I said, I'm not doing much with my phone. Turns out I've used less than 0 0.3 gigabytes per month for the past three months. So I'm not a heavy data user on my phone. Um, I expect that this might be something that's used sparingly and only when necessary. And, you know, you're not going to watch movies o over your one gigabyte of free Microsoft Edge VPN data. Um, their, their UI does have a bytes used per so far this month meter. So it'll be possible to track one's usage and get a sense for, you know, how it's going and whether you need to scale back and so forth. Anyway, overall, this seems like a useful and welcome feature. You know, it's limited, but it's free. Uh, and you, you just need to be logged into Edge or Microsoft through Edge, which I imagine Edge users would be. So it'll, you know, it's it'll be there in a pinch. Okay. <laughs> LastPass incident update. <clears throat> Yesterday, LastPass provided, by far, more detail about that second, more devastating attack that they suffered. And that's, of course, the one that inspired the Leaving LastPass podcast and the one that followed just, that was just titled <laughs> The Numeral One when we found out that that's what iteration counts, in some cases, had been left at. Um, and I have to admit that the forensics 
which were presented were impressive. Um, this doesn't forgive them in any way from screwing up in the several other ways that we know they did. But as far as forensics examinations go, it's impressive. It's easy to tell a story in retrospect. But as I'm describing what they have determined actually happened, imagine figuring this out. That's, again, I said, you know, as I said, it's it's impressive. So uh, I have a link to the incident details. I'm not going to cover all of it because it goes into way more detail than we need. But what they wrote was, LastPass has now learned and explained to us, they said, to access the cloud-based storage resources, notably S3 buckets, which are protected with encryption, the threat actor needed to obtain AWS access keys and the last pass generated decryption keys. The encrypted cloud-based storage devices house backups of LastPass customer and encrypted vault data, right? And that's what got away from them. They wrote, as mentioned in the first incident summary, certain LastPass credentials stolen during the first attack were encrypted and the threat actor did not have access to the decryption keys, which could only be retrieved from two locations. First, a segmented, I'm sorry, a segregated and secured implementation of an orchestration platform and key value store used to coordinate backups of LastPass development and production environments with various cloud-based storage resources. That's the first place where the keys were. Or a highly restricted set of shared folders in a LastPass password manager vault that are used by DevOps engineers to perform administrative duties in these environments. Okay, they said, due to the security controls protecting and securing the on-premises data center installations of LastPass production, the threat actor targeted one of the four DevOps engineers who had access to the decryption keys needed to access the cloud storage service. This was accomplished by targeting the DevOps engineer's home computer uh. and, ex and, uh -huh, and exploiting a vulnerable third-party media software package which enabled remote code execution capability and allowed the threat actor to implant keylogger malware. The threat actor was able to capture the employee's master password as it was entered after the employee authenticated with multi-factor authentication and gain access to the DevOps engineer's LastPass corporate vault. The threat actor then exported the native corporate vault entries, and content of shared folders, which contained encrypted secure notes with access and decryption keys needed to access the AWS S3 LastPass production backups, other cloud-based storage resources, and some related critical database backups. <laughs> so yes, Leo, as, as you gasped, uh, this was quite an attack. I mean, and I saw a rumor that it was Plex, that it was a flaw, or they thought it might be a flaw in Plex, which this engineer had been running. So this was a very sophisticated attack. I mean, not just targeted, 
But they were rooting around in this guy's machine and able to find another flaw. Yep. And, and, and of course, Plex is a media software package, so that tracks with that rumor that you heard. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it was I'm, and it was online because people often put their Plex servers uh, on the public yep. internet. So that <laughs> that's yeah, there's your, they're in there in lies your problem, right? So as I'm as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, wow, no one wants these guys on their tail. No kidding. Because yeah. wow, okay, so listen to the steps LastPass has since taken in an effort to recover from this attack. Well, they Remember should get collide is the first thing they should do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Remember how last week I was talking about how difficult it would be to ever be able to trust anything ever again. Yeah. So they wrote. Zero as trust. We uh -huh. As we progress through incident response and as part of our ongoing containment, eradication and recovery activities related to the second incident, we have performed the following actions with additional work currently being accomplished in scoping and planning. In other words, they're not even done yet as of yesterday. So they said, with the assistance of Mandiant, we forensically imaged devices to investigate corporate and personal resources and gather evidence detailing potential threat actor activity. We assisted the DevOps engineer with hardening the security of their home network and personal resources. We enabled Microsoft's conditional access pin matching multi-factor authentication using an upgrade to the Microsoft Authenticator application, which became generally available during the incident. We rotated critical and high-privilege credentials that were known to be available to the threat actor well, okay, good. We continue to rotate. We, we continue to rotate the remaining lower priority items that pose no risk to our LastPass or our customers. Again, good. We began revoking and reissuing certificates obtained by the threat actor. We analyzed LastPass AWS3 cloud storage resources and applied or started to apply additional S3 hardening measures. We put in place additional logging and alerting across the storage, the cloud storage environment with tighter IAM, that's identity and access management policies enforced. We deactivated prior development IAM users, in other words, they had not, that had not been done before. So good. We enabled a policy that prevents the creation and use of long lived development IAM users in the new development environment. So that's good. They're, they're changing policies and tightening security when they, when they looked and realized, Oh crap, we've got a bunch of X, X user, X development users who still have credentials here. And they said we rotated existing production service IAM user keys, applied tighter IP restrictions, and configured policies to adhere to least privilege. We deleted obsolete service IAM users from the development and production environments. We're enabling IAM resource tagging enforcement on accounts for both users and roles with periodic reporting on non-compliant resources. We rotated critical SAML certificates used for internal and external services. We deleted obsolete slash unused 
SAML certificates used for development services or third parties. And again, that hadn't been done previously. Good that they did it. Need to make that a policy. We revised our 24-7 threat detection and response coverage with additional managed and automated services enabled to facilitate appropriate escalation. And finally, we developed and enabled custom analytics that can detect ongoing abuse of AWS resources. So, okay, uh, it's, it's evident that things are way better now than they were before, which you know, that's always sort of been the double-edged sword of this is, you know, do you do you trust better somebody who's learned from their mistake? There's obviously lots of, if I may use the term, learnings <laughs> here. Uh, on the other hand, they were clearly doing some things wrong by policy, and that's difficult to forgive, and that's what finally you know, caused us en masse to leave LastPass. Well, and also, um, do you want those four DevOps guys who have the keys to be able to bring those home? I guess you do. Now, this all because of COVID probably, right? Yeah, and and it was probably VPNing in. Uh, one of the things I noticed uh, that I, I commented on here in passing is they said, we rotated existing production service user keys applied tighter IP restrictions. Uh, if they didn't have any, then Russia could have connected uh, to, to their S3 buckets, right, right? Right. So it makes absolute sense to allow, first of all, the IP of somebody VPNing will be the same as the corporate IP network. Right. The, so if you weren't VPNing, your IP would be at home, but at least you'd be in the vicinity. So... You know, again, the, the, there's this the, the 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 problem we've always had is that is this this tendency not to want support calls, right? It's like you know we don't want tech support calls, so you know if we if we don't don't default to things being open, then then we're going to get complaints when things don't work, right? So we're still sort of in that mode, and 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 also. Looking at this list of stuff, one of the, the bugaboos of, of evolution over time, and LastPass has been around for a long time, is that things tend to become more complicated over time. Yeah. You know, this is usually driven by inevitably changing requirements. New systems are added to improve or to enable some new job. But the new system doesn't completely take over for the old one. So that older system needs to still stay around to do some of those few things that the newer system doesn't quite do the same. Then the requirements change again and some customizations are required. You know, some glue code is created by somebody who then later quits and takes his notes and knowledge with him. Now no one wants to touch that weird box in the corner since no one's quite sure how it works. You know, and that's the way this, I mean, this actually happens in the real world. Uh, and Leo, I've heard you at the beginning of some of the podcasts recently, like trying to figure out how to, I don't know what it is that's going on over there. But, <laughs> oh boy, you know, I don't either. Twit, twit, <laughs> and exactly. That's what happens is, you know, so I used to know how everything worked here. Now I know nothing. <laughs> 
Anyone who's who's been working in, within a complex environment with many players and constant time pressure where needs are dynamically changing will probably be able to relate to this sort of mess, you know, that winds up evolving from a what was originally a simple solution. And so my point is, in the context of security, this sort of creeping, evolving complexity makes both keeping things truly secure and recovering rapidly from an incident, if one happens, much more difficult. And, you know, it, it occurred to me that there, there really needs to be somebody who is assigned the task of stepping back from the day-to-day fray to take sort of a holistic view of an enterprise's systems and be constantly working to reintegrate the inherently disintegrating systems that just naturally form. You know, keeping things as simple as possible has tremendous benefits for an organization. And in a sufficiently large organization, I think it really ought to be a job title. There ought to be like a job title, you know, like, I don't know, holistic system reintegrator or something, you know, and, you know, he could like not shave and dress funny and that, cause that would sort of fit the title, but really somebody who's working against these otherwise sort of natural forces of entropy, which tends to disintegrate things over time. <laughs> okay. Uh, exactly as we predicted <laughs> three days ago, BBC news headlined, their coverage, Signal would walk from UK if online safety bill undermined encryption. With a subhead, the message encrypting app Signal has said it would stop providing services in the UK if a new law undermined encryption. Signal's president, Meredith Whitaker, told the BBC that if they were forced to weaken the privacy of their messaging system under the online safety bill, the organization, quote, would absolutely 100% walk. Of course, the government said that his proposal is not a ban on end-to-end encryption, unquote, but the bill which was introduced by Boris Johnson is currently going through Parliament. And as we recently covered in detail, under Uh, The revisions proposed by this new legislation, companies would be required to scan messages on encrypted apps for child sexual abuse material, language suggestive of grooming or terrorism content. WhatsApp previously told the BBC that it would also refuse to lower its security, and I put that in air quotes, for any government. In the case of WhatsApp, the question might come down to the definition of the term security. Uh, But the folks behind Signal are likely to be far more clear about that. The BBC's coverage reminds us that, you know, the government and prominent child protection charities have long argued that encryption hinders efforts to combat online child abuse, which they say is a growing problem. The UK's Home Office said in a statement, it is important 
that technology companies make every effort to ensure that their platforms do not become a breeding ground for pedophiles, unquote. The Home Office added, the online safety bill does not represent a ban on end-to-end encryption, but makes clear that technological changes should not be implemented in a way that diminishes public safety, especially the safety of children online. Children. Think of the children. That's right. It is not a choice between privacy or child safety. We can and we must have both, unquote. Right. (laughs) We can because we say we can. Right. We're willing to go as far as to change the definitions of words <laughs> in order to have both the safety of our children and total privacy for everyone, even though we may need to change the meaning of total. Yeah. But yeah. just just a little bit, you know, that that pesky math is so annoyingly absolute. Yes. After all, we create laws. That's what we do. Unfortunately, not the laws of nature or of mathematics. But still, this is what we want, and we're used to getting our way. So the UK's child protection charity, the NSPCC, said in reaction to Signal's announcement, quote, tech companies should be required to Mm. disrupt the abuse that is occurring at record levels on their platforms including in private messaging and end-to-end encrypted environments, unquote. But the digital rights campaigners on the other side, the open rights group said this highlighted how the bill threatened to undermine our right to communicate securely and privately. Uh, The signals, Ms. Whitaker said backdoors to enable the scanning of private messages would be exploited by malignant state actors and create a way for criminals to access these systems. When asked if the online safety bill would jeopardize Signal's ability to offer service in the UK, she told the BBC, quote, it could, and we would absolutely 100% walk away rather than ever undermine the trust that people place in us Good. to provide a truly private means of communication. Right on. She said, we, ha- we have never weakened our privacy promises, and we never will. Period. Good. Yep. Matthew Hodson, chief executive of Element, a British secure communications company, said that the threat of mandated scanning alone would cost him clients. He argued that customers would assume any secure communication product that came out of the UK would necessarily have to have backdoors in order to allow for illegal content to be scanned. Matthew added that it could also result in a very surreal situation where a government bill might undermine security guarantees given to customers at the Ministry of Defense and other sensitive areas of government. Hmm. He said that his firm might have to cease offering such services. Hmm. And that raises a great point. Would the most sensitive users within the government also be consenting to having all of their communications intercepted, scanned, and possibly forwarded to a central clearinghouse for human oversight? That seems unlikely. As for child safety signals, Miss Whitaker said, quote, there's no one 
who doesn't want to protect children. Some of the stories that are invoked have been harrowing. When asked how she would respond to arguments that encryption protects abusers, Ms. Whitaker pointed to a paper by Professor Ross Anderson, which argued for better funding of services working in child protection and warned that, quote, the idea that complex social problems are amenable to cheap technical solutions is the siren song of the software salesman. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. The idea that complex social problems are amenable to cheap technical solutions is the siren song of the software salesman. So there's no question that the issue of child safety is real. But terrorism content was also mentioned. And doesn't everyone also appreciate that no government, no matter how respectful of its citizens' inherent and often constitutionally guaranteed privacy rights, is comfortable with not having some capability for oversight over its citizenry when it believes that such might be needed. As I've noted of our own constitutional government in the U.S., the Constitution's guarantee for privacy is conditional. Courts are able to issue search warrants when presented with probable cause. We've been watching the approach of this slow-motion collision for years. So it's going to be very interesting to see how this all shakes out. We know that Signal and Telegram and Threema will not capitulate. There's just no way they would. But it's difficult to see how Meta's various services, Google with Android, and Apple may not be forced to go along rather than lose access to those huge markets. Apple already demonstrated a willingness to find some compromise by performing that local fuzzy hash scanning. Of course, the backlash from that was epic. Uh, ultimately, I think governments are probably going to win this legal battle since they're the ones who write the laws, and thus it's possible for them to delineate what behavior is legal and what is not. At that point, any use of fully secure end-to-end -end encrypted solutions will be outlawed, at which point, as we know, only outlaws will be using them. So download it now so you too can be an outlaw. <laughs> That's right. Get your soon-to-be-illegal-to-use software. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh. I do know some people actually who have purchased guns because they were worried that you know they were soon going to be outlawed. It's like yeah, no, don't, yeah. you, don't to, you don't have to worry about that in the U.S. Not in the U.S., baby. Okay, uh, okay. More pie pie troubles. Remember last week how I felt that I needed to at least mention the continuous background of ongoing attacks on open source repositories and registries. Well, last Friday the security firm. Phylum posted some news regarding the PyPy, that's, you know, the Python package index. Their posting's headline was Phylum discovers aggressive attack on PyPy attempting to deliver a Rust executable. They wrote, on the morning of February 23rd, 2023, Phylum's automated risk detection platform started lighting up with another series of strange publications on PyPy. After digging into it, we were able to link it to another, another smaller campaign from January, last month. 
First, they said, we can confirm that this is an ongoing attack. As we worked on this write-up, we saw the list of packages published go from a few dozen to over 500. I know. The most recent packages appear to be getting published at around one every four to eight seconds. So we suspect that this may continue for some time. You can look at the package publication section at the bottom of this post to see the packages we've seen. As of the publication of this post, we've already seen 1,138 malicious packages published. Anyway, they go on to explain in detail the nature of the malware. The short version is that the malicious packages connect to a Dropbox account to download and install a Rust-based malware strain. Phylum says the attacker appears to be the same group that was previously spotted by Fortinet and Reversing Labs the week before in a separate smaller campaign. Now, as I was saying last week when we talked about this, our open source repositories are now under more or less constant attack. Uh, and Leo, as you commented last week, the industry you know, needs to come up with some solution to the poisoning of our open repositories. The only solution I can see is a future where internet identity and reputation can be rigorously established and verified. And I know people love the freedom of using synthetic online identities and monikers. And I think that's a hundred percent fine. So long as they don't also want the benefits that accrue from being known and trusted. At least at the moment, it's unclear how it's possible to have both. At the moment, we have neither. So, uh, again, I just, you know, we want this stuff to be open, but, uh, you know, why we can't have nice things. (sighs) In the interest of giving credit where it's due, the often in the doghouse... Taiwanese hardware vendor QNAP, right? The manufacturer of the always apparently in trouble uh, NAS devices, which are exposed to the Internet, on Friday announced the launch of its own bug bounty program. Yay. Vulnerabilities relating to QNAP operating systems, applications, and cloud services are all in scope, and rewards can go up to uh, U.S., $20,000. They do still need to find some way of keeping their devices patched when problems are found. But we've, you know, as we've just seen with VMware, they're not alone in having that problem to solve. I think that tomorrow's systems, that is globally, some one way or another, are all going to have to phone home just as our consumer operating systems have all been doing for some time. And there will either have to be an autonomous upgrade and reboot facility or some reliable notification path to the device's administrators. This problem needs to get solved. But finding and fixing those problems comes first. And QNAP's bounty, while not huge, is a clear step in the right direction. 
And Leo, let's talk about the club for a minute. Then I'm going to tell. <laughs> I can I, tell. Talk, yeah. <laughs> I know. Take a break. I know when you, you get a little thirsty. Break. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and then we're going to talk about a an unbelievable bug, which uh, we have found in motherboard bioses, which is going to necess- necessitate a change in spin rate. Wow. Uh, and then we're going to talk about uh, what the NSA uh, tells us we should do at home. Okay. And, of course, for those of you in the club, this will be merely a thank you and back to Steve. The rest of you, I want to give you a little pitch. Uh, One of the reasons people join the club is because you don't get any ads, including this ad. They're all cut out, so you just get the content of the show. And the reason we do that is if you pay us 7 bucks a month, we don't need to sell ads. We don't need to sell your attention. And uh, I think that's a fair trade, but that's not all you get with Club Twit. You also get access to one of the best social networks ever, the Club Twit Discord. Inside our Discord are all, you know, thousands of other Club Twit members Sure, they're talking about the shows when the shows are on. There's a Security Now segment or a section on the Discord. But there's also sections on anime and comic books and cars, travel, photography, coding, everything that our smart and interesting audience is interested in. And so it turns out hanging out in the in the Discord is a 24-7 thing. I mean, it's just so much Okay, you can sleep. So, you know, let's make it 16-7. How about that? Uh, But it's still a really great place to hang. You get that, too. So ad-free, you get the Discord. You get events, too, in the Discord that uh, aren't uh, anywhere else. Uh, For instance, we have shows uh, that uh, like the... um, Boy, it's really blown up big. Let me see if I can make this smaller so you can can see it. We have... um, In the Discord, we have shows... That we don't put out as uh, as podcasts, for instance. Here's the. <laughs> I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> we have animated gifs, which really make the Discord a lot of fun. But we should put out shows that are not a podcast, like Micah Sargent's Hands On Macintosh or Hands On Windows with Paul Thorat, the Untitled Linux Show. Uh, we have a lot of events that our community manager puts together. Mr. Ant Pruitt, for instance, uh, Ant has. Got to ask me anything on Thursday with our car guy, Samable Samad. So I know a lot of you would be interested in that. Stacy's Book Club every other month. This month, it's going to be the Sea of Tranquility. Actually, it's in April. Uh, also coming in April, an a- a Inside Twit with Victor Bognot, one of our great editors. Alex Wilhelm, you know him from TechCrunch, and his many appearances on Twit will be doing an Ask Me Anything in May. And... From Floss Weekly, Sean Powers will be doing an Ask Me Anything. But there's more events coming all the time. (laughs) That's mean. (laughs) Uh, As if that weren't enough, there's also the Twit Plus feed, which uh, contains before and after show conversations, uh, little tidbits and twits and all sorts of stuff. You're also supporting, and this maybe is the most important thing you're doing when you give us your $7. You're supporting everything we do. There's only one ad in this show. There was only one ad in Mac Break Weekly. That's barely break even. Might not even be break even. It's expensive to run this network and to give you all this great content. And if you appreciate it, I'd appreciate it if you'd support us. Uh, podcast advertising is falling off a cliff. Don't know why. It's not just us. It's everybody. Uh, 
NPR had to lay off 30% of its, uh, or sorry, 10% of its staff because they lost $300 million in podcast advertising last quarter. Uh, we don't want to do any layoffs. And if you join the club, we won't have to. Go to twit.tv slash club twit. It supports what we do. If you can't afford it, I understand completely. We've still got all the free programming this show, ad-supported as always. But if you like what we do and you want to keep it going, you want to hear new shows we launched this week in Space in the Club and and then put it out in the public, this is the best way, the only way forward, I think, uh, at least for the next few years, probably forever. Podcasting needs the support of its listeners, people like you. Uh, we we Right now, we have, I think, 7,000 club members out of 700,000 unique listeners every month, that's 1%. I'd like to do more. Maybe get it to 3, 4, 5%. That means you. Twit.tv slash club twit. We have uh, corporate memberships as well if you want to get your company involved. Twit.tv slash club twit. And I thank you uh, so much to all of our club members uh, because your help has really made a lot possible uh, uh, with twit. And we want to keep going. We've been doing this for... What is it, 18 years now? Uh, We're in year 18, so coming up on 19. I'd like to make it to 20. Hey, everybody. Leo Laporte here. I am the founder and one of the hosts at the Twit Podcast Network. I want to talk to you a little bit about what we do here at Twit, because I think it's unique. And I think for anybody who is uh, bringing a product or a service to a tech audience, you need to know about what we do here at Twit. We've built an amazing audience of engaged, intelligent, affluent listeners who listen to us and trust us when we recommend a product. Our mission statement is Twit is to build a highly engaged community of tech enthusiasts. Boy, already you should be your ears should be perking up at that because highly engaged is good for you. Tech enthusiasts, if that's who you're looking for, this is the place. We do it by offering them the knowledge they need to understand and use technology in today's world. And I hear from our audience all the time, part of that knowledge comes from our advertisers. We are very careful. We pick advertisers with great products, great services, with integrity, and introduce them to our audience with authenticity uh, and genuine enthusiasm. And that makes our host red ads different from anything else you can buy. We are literally bringing you to the attention of our audience and giving you a big, fat endorsement. We like to create partnerships with trusted brands, brands who are in it for the long run, long-term partners that want to grow with us. And we have so many great success stories. Tim Broom, who founded IT Pro TV in 2013, started advertising with us on day one, has been with us ever since. He said, quote, we would not be where we are today without the Twit Network. I think the proof is in the pudding. Advertisers like IT Pro TV and Audible that have been with us for more than 10 years, they stick around because their ads work. And honestly, isn't that why you're buying advertising? You get a lot with Twit. We have a very full-service attitude. We almost think of it as kind of artisanal uh, advertising, boutique advertising. You'll get a full-service continuity team. People who are on the phone with you, who are in touch with you, who support you from with everything from copywriting to graphic design. So you are not alone in this. We embed our ads into the shows. They're not... They're not added later. They're part of the shows. In fact, often 
they're such a part of our shows that our other hosts will chime in on the ad saying, yeah, I love that. Or just the other day, <laughs> one of our hosts said, man, I really got to buy that. <laughs> That's an additional benefit to you because you're hearing people, our audience trusts saying, yeah, that sounds great. Uh, we deliver, always over deliver on impressions. So you know you're going to get the impressions you expect. The ads are unique every time. We don't pre-record them and roll them in. We are genuinely doing those ads in the middle of the show. Uh, we'll give you great onboarding services. Ad tech with pod sites that's free for direct clients. Gives you a lot of reporting. Gives you a great idea of how well your ads are working. You'll get courtesy commercials. You actually can take our ads and share them across social media and landing pages. That really extends the reach. There are other free goodies too, including mentions in our weekly newsletter that's sent to thousands of fans engaged fans who really want to see this stuff we give you bonus ads and social media promotion too so if you want to be a long-term partner introduce your product to a savvy engaged tech audience visit twit.tv slash advertise check out those testimonials mark mccrary is the ceo of authentic you probably know him one of the biggest uh, original podcast advertising companies we've been with him for 16 years Mark said the feedback from many advertisers over 16 years across a range of product categories, everything from razors to computers, is that if ads and podcasts are going to work for a brand, they're going to work on Twitch shows. I'm very proud of what we do because it's honest, it's got integrity, it's authentic, and it really is a great introduction to our audience of your brand. Our listeners are smart, they're engaged, they're tech-savvy, they're dedicated to our network, and that's one of the reasons we only work with high-integrity partners that we've personally and thoroughly vetted. I have absolute approval on everybody. If you've got a great product, I want to hear from you. Elevate your brand by reaching out today at advertise at twit.tv. Break out of the advertising norm. Grow your brand with host red ads on twit.tv. Visit twit.tv slash advertise for more details, or you can email us, advertise at twit.tv. Dot TV if you're ready to launch your campaign now. I can't wait to see your product. So give us a ring. Okay. Somebody's got to okay. pay for Steve's hydration. Go right so ahead. I haven't, so. talked about, <laughs> I haven't talked about Spinrite at all for several weeks because I didn't have any significant news to share. But as a result of the work and discoveries over the past week, I have news today, which will more than make up for my previous week's silence. A major discovery which had been stymieing the project for weeks, has been solved. For the past many weeks, I've been tracking down, as I have mentioned, last time I talked about Spinrite, various sources of Spinrite crashes. I've discovered various sorts of misbehavior from DOS and motherboard BIOSes. They've been altering values in registers that they assume, wrongly, that others won't be using. You know, that's against every rule of good citizenship. You always put things back the way you found it when, when, when you're done using them. But in this case, these things weren't. The only way I can explain this behavior is that they're using, you know, for example, the upper half of 32-bit registers, figuring that in a 16-bit environment, no 16-bit app would notice. But Spinrite is now largely 32-bit code, and it makes constant use of all of those extra 32-bit resources. And in other cases, they're just not bothering to preserve any part of a register. So a lot of the work I've been doing recently has been defensive computing. 
someone suggested that term in in our in our development group, and I thought, well, maybe survival computing is the better term because I mean I have to do it in order to keep Spinrite running. So, uh, Spinrite already works without trouble for nearly everyone, um, but for those for whom it does not work, you know, they have my attention because I'm never sure whose fault the problem is. And I need to deter at least to determine that, you know, is it something I'm doing that I need to fix or is it something outside of my control? And there's no reason Spinrite shouldn't be able to protect itself from anything that a system might throw at it. Although that was recently challenged, one Canadian Spinrite tester, Andre, was able to get Spinrite to crash for him reliably. He had a system with a couple of internal drives and a 160 gigabyte USB drive connected. The USB drive was being marked red by Spinrite, which is a new feature. There's a, there's a whole, I mean, Spinrite 6 users are going to, they'll recognize it, but boy, I mean, the last several years have really changed Spinrite for to, m- m- moving it from 6 to 6.1. Anyway, uh, the, the USB drive he had was being marked red, meaning that during its initial appraisal of the drive, Spinrite had found something that wasn't right. You know, that's something that we've been seeing with drives that are quite near death. When the user attempts to select the drive for use, they'll receive a pop-up explanation of exactly what's wrong and, when possible, be given the option to proceed to use that drive anyway. But that 160-gig drive was being marked red That wasn't the problem. The problem was that shortly after enumerating those three drives, Spinrite would intercept its own attempt to execute an illegal x86 processor instruction, an illegal opcode. That should never happen. Um, I, I don't recall what made me suspicious, but I first asked Andre just to try unplugging that damaged USB drive and sure enough, no crash. Then, with that drive reattached, I provided Andre with an old-school DOS utility called EatMem. EatMem simply consumes some amount of RAM memory and then drops back to DOS. Back in the day, this was used to stress test programs by subjecting them to limited memory situations, but it also has the side effect of changing the location in RAM where DOS will load subsequent programs since it eats memory from the bottom up. And sure enough, by eating various amounts of memory before running Spinrite, Spinrite's crashing behavior would not occur, or it would occur differently even with that that 160-gig red-marked drive connected. Around the same time, one of our Spinrite testing participants, a guy named Paul Farrer, who also knows how to write DOS programs, was experimenting with his own, on his own, with a similar crash that he and another user were both seeing. That other user had attached a one terabyte USB drive to his machine, and it was crashing Spinrite when he, when he tried to run it. Paul hypothesized that the trouble might be caused by Spinrite attempting to read above the 137 gigabyte region of a drive. 
I have no idea how that occurred to him, but it turned out to be prescient. Um, 137 gigabytes is, is one of those many size limitations that we as an industry were constantly plagued with during the PC industry's early growth. Over and over and over. I mean, it's almost comical in retrospect. We kept outgrowing every upper limit that we assumed would never be exceeded. The classic story was that the 16-bit Apple II had a maximum of 64 kilobytes of main of main RAM memory. Yes, 64K of main RAM memory. And when the IBM PC came out with its initial maximum of 640 kilobytes, so exactly 10 times as much as the Apple II, the story was that during a trade show in 1981, Bill Gates said, we'll never need more than 640K, unquote. Now, today, Bill doesn't recall ever having said that. But, you know, it's apocryphal in the industry. Uh, you know, whether or not he did, although, you know, today it may seem ludicrous, I can easily imagine, having been active in the PC industry back at the time, that see, that it was seemingly reasonable to say that. And that's the point. These were always reasonable seeming limitations because none of us who were in the middle of this could have foreseen what has happened since. The early IDE drives had sizes in the hundreds of megabytes or maybe a few gigabytes. If, you know, like you could get some of those, and they were really expensive, you know, like a four gig drive. So the designers of those drives repurposed the addressing bits which had been used by the original cinders, uh, cylinders, heads, and sectors uh, registers to scrounge up a total of 28 bits that they could use to linearly address the sectors on an IDE drive. This was called LBA for linear block addressing. The use of those 28 bits to address sectors meant that a drive could have at most 2 to the power of 28 total physical sectors. Since sectors were 512 bytes each, that meant that the maximum size of those 28-bit LBA drives would be 137 gig. But, you know, back then, 137 gigabytes, no one would ever be able to create a drive that large, let alone have that much data that needed to be stored. I mean, come on. That's 137 billion with a B. Whoops. So Paul's intuition was that Spinrite's code was somehow being corrupted when it attempted to access sectors at the end of the drive, if a drive was larger than 137 gig, like that 160 gigabyte drive that Andre had was. Um, and accessing sectors at the end of the drive is one of the things that Spinrite does when it's sizing up a drive before listing it for use by its user. So Paul and I each independently wrote testing utilities to better understand what was going on. And what we discovered over this past weekend was a bit astonishing. I ended up writing two utilities. The first one was called BIOS Test. It BIOS test 
first filled all of the system's main RAM memory that wasn't already in use by DOS and the BIOS and buffers and the program itself with a deterministic pseudo-random pattern. Then it simply used the system's BIOS to read several sectors from the front of the drive and from the end of the drive. After each test read, it would rescan all of main memory looking for the first mismatching of data. It was looking to see whether reading any sector from a drive through the BIOS would cause the BIOS to alter main memory. And sure enough, after reading the last sectors of larger than 137 gigabyte USB drives on some motherboards, it found main memory mismatches. Reading sectors from the front of the drives never caused any problems. But reading any sectors whose linear address had more than 28 bits would actually damage the data stored in main memory. The USB support in those BIOSes was seriously buggy. During what Spinrite calls drive discovery and enumeration, it goes out to the very end of every drive it can locate to perform reading and writing confirmation and confidence testing. It's safest to do that out there, uh, out at the end, because the, the very ends of drives are usually empty and don't contain any user data. In fact, partitions don't tend to go all the way out to the end. They, they have like, like a, a, a shorter wrap factor uh, to, to be aligned. But when Spinrite was doing that on USB-connected drives on motherboards with those broken USB BIOSes, Bugs in the BIOS were blasting Spinrite's code, which was then causing it to crash. Whereas BIOS test checked a few sectors at the front and back of every BIOS drive, the second utility I wrote, BIOS scan, read every sector of a user-specified BIOS drive. It also filled memory with a pseudo-random test pattern. Then it would scan the entire drive from front to back while rescanning main memory. Anyway, I have a bunch more of this story in the show notes. I, I've taken up enough of everyone's time. We found a bad bug uh, that some BIOSes have, which occurs when uh, an attempt to read the end of drives larger than 137 gigabytes happens. So we've fixed the problem. Uh, we're, we're going to uh, clamp Spinrite's access at 137 gigabytes for USB connected drives until we get to Spinrite 7 because it is not safe for Spinrite to go any further than that. Uh, there's no there's no reliable way to test whether a BIOS is buggy or not. Uh, they're they're scattered around the Spinrite uh, users that we have, and this is even though it's a large bunch of users, it's a small sample size. So. We're going to get Spinrite 6.1 finished. It's you know, one less source of crashing now exists. And the, the, the first thing I'm adding to Spinrite 7 is native support for USB host controllers, which will then uh, release th this temporary limit on USB drive size uh, and also dramatically speed up the, 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 the uh, Spinrite's ability to use USB drives in the same way that it has sped up uh, uh, SATA and parallel drives running them now uh, like at their absolute maximum uh, speed they're able to function. 
So it was an interesting adventure with the help of lots of, t- of, of testing. Uh, we were able to track down a bizarre problem, which has gone unseen uh, in the industry. One, one person did find some reference to a, a boot manager saying that you should use it at the beginning of drives or not on drives larger than this 137 gig because of uh, some bugs that were in BIOSes. But, you know, it certainly hasn't been widely known. Um, I did want to mention a an interesting programmer-oriented humble book bundle. We've talked about those in the past. And, in fact, I found that I, because it's got a, a crazy uh, long URL, I assigned it one of GRC shortcuts, and I decided to use the, the shortcut bundle, B-U-N-D-L-E, which had been taken. I used it before in, in 2021 on a different humble bundle. So we're reusing the same shortcut. Uh, it's an 18-book humble bundle of programmer-related books. So anyway, uh, take a look at it. There's a bunch of programming books by Randall Hyde, who's you know legendary in, the, in, in programming circles, uh, and a bunch more. So grc.com slash bundle, B-U-N-D-L-E, if you are interested. Uh, and, you know, there, as, as Leo and I were talking about this before we began recording, uh, you know, they're not absolutely amazing books, but they're uh, the 18 of them. You, you, you pay what you want for them. Uh, the money goes to support the EFF. Uh, and I can, you know, there are some good ones uh, in the collection, as is often the case. Just think like a programmer is a classic, and it's got that. Yes. Yeah, and it's got that uh, assembly language book, too, which you like. And this, yes, if you want to learn closure, everybody language. everybody loves this book, although I think this is online for free. This is all No Starch yeah. Press. They do great stuff. I really love No Starch yeah. Press's stuff. I have a lot of their books. Yep, grc.sc slash bundle. Okay, so surprisingly, the NSA has offered some home security best practices advice. Last Wednesday, the National Security Agency, you know, our NSA, published an attractive and end-user accessible nine-page PDF loaded with tips for helping to secure a home network environment. And, Leo, it's our shortcut of the week. So if you want to scroll through it uh, on, on the screen while I'm talking about it, uh, grc.sc slash 912 grc.sc slash 912. Uh, Anyway, uh, it is really good, and I want to share and comment on some of what the NSA has suggested. Our our longtime listeners will feel uh, right at home, so to speak, with everything that the NSA wrote. They let off with three major key points. Upgrade and update all equipment and software regularly, including routing devices. Exercise secure habits by backing up your data and disconnecting devices when connections are not needed. And limit administration to the internal network only. These these three points are actually pulled out of of, of the larger piece. But, you know, clearly keep your stuff up to date. Do secure things and do not open Uh, anything to remote administration. They also said, and I thought this was interesting, 
IoT devices on a home network are often overlooked, but also require updates. Enable automatic update functionality when available. If automatic updates are not available, download and install patches and updates from a trusted vendor on a monthly basis. So it's interesting that the NSA, you know, they too see the threat posed by our out-of-date or defective IoT devices. Of course, the question is, often, who are you going to call to update some random IoT light switch or wall plug? Um, but moving forward, it would be good to see future devices based on open standards and platforms and for there to be some sort of certification systems in place. We have a long way to go, you know, but such work is underway. Okay, and this one was interesting. They wrote, your Internet service provider may provide a modem slash router as part of your service contract. To maximize administrative control over the routing and wireless features of your home network, consider using a personally owned routing device that connects to the ISP provided modem router. In addition to modem router features to create a separate wireless network for guests for network separation from your more trusted and private devices. Okay, now that was a little bit surprising. They're saying even if your Internet service provider offers a modem router as part of the service package, get your own that you control and manage and use it to connect your network to the provider's bandwidth. Again, some sound advice. And on router guidance, they say, your router is the gateway to your home network. Without proper security and patching, it is more likely to be compromised, which can lead to the compromise of other devices on your network as well. To minimize vulnerabilities and improve security, the routing devices on your home network should be updated to the latest patches, preferably through automatic updates. These devices should also be replaced when they reach end of life for support. This ensures that all devices can continue to be updated and patched as vulnerabilities are discovered. Okay, how many times have we seen companies explaining that they won't be offering updates to fix known critical remote code execution problems for older devices because they are EOL, you know, end of life. So anyone still using those devices is SOL. Um, and we've often seen like inventories of these end of life devices still out exposed on the public internet and they're never going to get patched. When selecting a router, this suggests an important criteria that's easily overlooked, and that's the active and supported service life that has historically been provided by various competing vendors. If this criteria were to become a popular advertised you know, selection, it would put more pressure on vendors to keep older devices supported longer yeah, even though it might mean reduced sales in the future due to the longevity of previous products, which were still supported and going strong. I don't know that, you know, anybody is actually yet buying a new device to replace a working old device simply because the old device is no longer receiving updates. I don't think most people even know whether 
you know, devices are receiving updates or not. But I, I appreciate the NSA saying, you know, if a device you've got is so old that it is no longer receiving updates, and if a problem were found that could never be fixed, and if you care about security, these things aren't that expensive anymore. The NSA also talked about WPA3. We briefly touched on this next generation Wi-Fi 6 and WPA3 encryption, but we haven't yet given it a deep dive, and it's probably time for us to do so. It's had a somewhat slow liftoff since the Wi-Fi Alliance's WPA certification process started back in 2018, so, you know, between four and five years ago. But Wi-Fi 6 and WPA3-capable devices are here now, so we'll get around soon to doing a podcast. Here's what the NSA wrote. They said, to keep your wireless communications confidential, ensure your personal or ISP-provided WAP is capable of Wi-Fi Protected Access 3. If you have devices on your network that do not support WPA3, you can select WPA2-3 instead. This allows newer devices to use the more secure method while still allowing older devices to connect to the network over WPA2. When configuring WPA3 or WPA2-3, use a strong passphrase with a minimum length of 20 characters. When available, protected management frames should also be enabled for added security. Most computers and mobile devices now support WPA3 or do. If you're planning to purchase a new device, ensure that it is WPA3 personal certified. Change the default service set identifier, you know, the SSID, to something unique. Do not hide the SSID as this adds no additional security to the wireless network and may cause compatibility issues. All of that is true. I'm, I was very impressed as I was reading through this that, you know, the degree to which the NSA got it. So, as I said, we'll do a Wi-Fi 6 podcast soon. Seeing this next one raised an eyebrow since everyone knows that I worry about the day a widely used IoT device goes rogue. The NSA wrote, Implement Wireless Network Segmentation. They said, leverage network segmentation on your home network to keep your wireless communication secure. At a minimum, your wireless network should be segregated between your primary Wi-Fi, guest Wi-Fi, and IoT network. Holy, you've been saying this for years, but it's interesting to hear them recommend this to normal people because I don't think normal people know how to do this. I know. Um, You know... Uh, and and they finish saying this segmentation keeps less secure devices from directly communicating with your more secure devices. You know, as we know, uh, you know, I've been promoting multi-NIC routers, which were able to do that. Uh, and some of the more recent Wi-Fi routers are beginning to offer stronger segmentation options as well. So I would say that's something to look for when you're shopping for a new Wi-Fi router uh, is check out uh, and see if it offers built-in segmentation that will make it a lot more accessible to uh, you know average users. What do they Although, call it? What do they? What is there a name that they give it? Or 
Uh, that's a good question. I think I think that the Asus router I'm using it definitely has a guest Wi-Fi, but I think it has multiple guest Wi-Fi's, mm. and so you could and and you are able to keep, to keep them from talking to each other. So that would mean you could give your second guest Wi-Fi use that for your IoT stuff. Okay. Yeah. The problem I think a lot of people will have is that they can't then. I know. Use devices on the main network to control the IoT devices. And you yep. and I and our audience probably knows how to do sophisticated firewall rules to allow that. But you have to know it. That's really, you know, black diamond stuff, right? That's pretty yeah. advanced. Yeah. But again, uh, it was it was amazing to see the NSA saying this, and yeah. you know, our and our users, you know, get a little additional impetus behind that. Too. Well, and every it looks like everything in this NSA document, you would agree with a hundred percent, right? Yes, absolutely. In fact, there's something I've never recommended that I agree with that we'll get to in a second. Oh, yeah. So, what about the presence of personal assistant technologies mm. and worries over eavesdropping? Well, not surprisingly, the NSA is not a big fan of things with microphones. <laughs> unless it's theirs. <laughs> unless, yes, unless, unless they're on the other end. Exactly. So they wrote, Beware that home assistants and smart devices have microphones and are listening to conversations even when you are not actively engaging with the device. If compromised, the adversary can eavesdrop on conversations. Limit sensitive conversations when you're near baby monitors, audio recording toys, home assistants, and smart devices. Consider muting their microphones when not in use. Wow. For devices with cameras, you know, laptops, monitoring devices, and toys, cover cameras when you're not using them. Disconnect Internet access if a device is not commonly used, but be sure to update it when you do use it. So I got a kick out of that one. And all that security advice falls nicely under the umbrella of generally sound, if maybe a little paranoid security advice. Following that, under the topic of general security hygiene, they add, to minimize ransomware risks, backup data on external drives or portable media. Disconnect and securely store external storage when not in use. You know, take it offline. Minimize charging mobile devices with computers. Use the power adapter instead. Avoid connecting devices to public charging stations. Leave computers in sleep mode to enable downloading and installing updates automatically. Regularly reboot computers to apply the updates. Turn off devices or disconnect their internet connections when, they're not, when they will not be used for an extended time, such as when going on vacation. In other words, think security at all times and try to never take it for granted. You know, it's sort of the broader equivalent of what has happened to email, where it's no longer ever safe, unfortunately, to assume that all email is legitimate and that links can be clicked on without careful scrutiny. It's a sad state, but it's the state we're in. And everyone knows that I love this one. Limit administration to the internal network only. They said disable the ability to perform remote administration on the routing device. Only make network configuration changes from within your internal network. 
disable, they, this is them, disable universal plug and play. These measures help close holes that may enable an actor or to, an actor to compromise your network. And Leo, I do kind of wonder maybe if they listen to the podcast. Uh, and there was one piece of advice that makes sense, but I have never recommended. They said, schedule frequent device reboots. They wrote, to minimize the threat of non-persistent malicious code on your personally owned device, reboot the device periodically. Malicious implants have been reported to infect home routers without persistence. At a minimum, you should schedule weekly reboots of your routing device. Well, that seems a little often, but okay. Smartphones and computers. Regular reboots help to remove implants and ensure security. I mean, it's true. They do. What's interesting about this advice is that, as we know, many forms of malware are RAM resident only. They never write anything to non-volatile media. Some routers are ever ne almost never rebooted. So malware authors probably figure that there's no reason to bother writing it to non-volatile memory and arranging to get it to start where it's a little more visible, you know, in, in the startup script. Uh, and we know that in well-protected environments, writing to disk can trip all sorts of monitoring alarms. You know, and some malware might want to disappear after a reboot so that its larger network of devices can remain hidden. So if it's not necessary for something to survive a reboot, malware might well choose not to. Consequently, indeed, a reboot will permanently flush RAM-based malware from the system. Okay, now... If the way such malware originally got into the system in the first place, you know, and, and then obtained its foothold in RAM, uh, if that's not closed off and resolved, then it might come back before long. But yeah, re reboots are inherently cleansing. I think that was a great point, and it's one I've never talked about before. So, okay, those were just some of the highlights that I thought were the more interesting a little bit surprising in some cases and insightful, but there is much more than those in the nine page document than you know what I've just shared. And the entire document is so good that I think everyone listening would benefit from it, you know, from at least scanning and probably also by recommending it to others. It has the additional pedigree of bearing the official seal of the National Security Agency, you know, which might help everyone's non-security now listening friends sit up a little bit and take it seriously. And as we've seen, it's far from being the typical useless piece of, you know, say nothing bureaucratic nonsense. Uh, as friendly and useful as the document is, it's line and a half wrapping around URL is not nearly as friendly. So this week's GRC shortcut is that. You can find it at grc.sc slash 912, since this is episode 912. You know, and big props to the NSA for assembling something so useful and largely so actionable. If nothing else, the nature of the recommendations would help someone who doesn't live in the security realm to realize the way security conscious professionals think. Uh, and that would, you know, 
probably be surprising to many people. It's like, wow, you're really that paranoid? I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm going to share this on um, Ask the Tech Guys. This is really, yeah. uh, really good. It is a great, is a great document. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I can't think of anything I would disagree with. There's some things that maybe are not easy to implement. Um, yeah, I mean, like going around, you're going to put, like, cover up the microphone holes on yeah. your various devices. I mean, baby monitors we know get hacked, but yes. no device from Amazon or Google, to my knowledge, has ever been hacked. Uh, most people are more afraid of Amazon and Google listening in, which they don't, um, or Siri. I, I think that the, the big three, right? You, you don't know of any hacks of them, exploits no. with them. Of course, if you no. had an exploit, you wouldn't tell anyone. Uh, That'd be a good right. nation state exploit. That's I know a right. lot of it's surprisingly large number of people that we work with, sophisticated users, will not have these devices in their homes. I have an Echo right there, a Google Assistant right there. I have Siri right here. You got it in your pocket with your phone. Uh, but they just say, no, 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 not going to do it. Yeah. Very interesting. Great show as always, Mr. Gee, Mr. G. Steve Gibson is at grc.com, the Gibson Research Corporation. If you go there, you can get a copy of Spin Right now. Get it while it's hot. Uh, you get 6.0 today. You'll be getting 6.1 now bug free, right? <laughs> one, well, one one fewer class of very serious bugs. That's a weird you know? bug. Wow. Oh my God. I mean, just it's blasting up up to a sixty four k block of RAM was was being changed, and and you know it's the the the, the problem is the fact that it's this twenty eight bit barrier. We don't know that BIOSes that don't destroy RAM properly address sectors past that they might be wrapping around oh, back wow. to sector zero oh, yeah. when, when you go past so i just decided out of an abundance of caution yeah. we're, we're gonna i'm gonna allow Spinrite to work on the first 137 gig of anything you attach by usb but not past that because it, it we just can't prove that it's safe right and what that does is that gets spin out the door sooner and i'm immediately Switching to Spinrite Seven. I'm gonna and, and the and, oh you know, good Spinrite. Oh yeah, that's I'm not taking a vacation. I'm I'm as soon as six one is done, I'm starting on seven. I'm very excited. This man is strong like ox, never <laughs> stopping, constantly going forward. So good news. Get six zero now. Get six one the minute it comes out, and we'll talk about seven. That's and I'll be working on seven. Not imminent, I don't think. You'll be hearing about it. Yeah, good, good. GRC.com. While you're there, you, of course, can pick up a copy of the show. Steve has two unique versions, a 16-kilobit audio version for the bandwidth impaired. Beautifully written transcripts by Elaine Ferris, so you can read along as you listen or search. Uh, that's all at GRC.com. Uh, we have 64-kilobit audio and video at our site, twit.tv slash SN. You can leave questions for Steve at his site, grc.com slash feedback. He's also on Twitter at SGGRC, and his DMs are open. So comments and questions are fielded there as well. Don't expect a personal reply, but he might use it in the show. Um, you can watch us do this show every Tuesday, about 1.30 to 2 p.m. Pacific. That's 4.30 uh, p.m. to 7.30 or 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time. That's 2130 UTC. Live.twit.tv is where the feeds are, live audio or video. That's kind of an aggregator of our YouTube and other and Twitch and all that. So you can pick the feed you want, audio or video. If you're watching live, chat live in our IRC. 
That's open to all at irc.twit.tv. You can use your browser. You don't need an IRC client. We also have, of course, our Discord for club members. They're chatting in there right now. After the fact, we have copies of the show, as I said, twit.tv slash sn. There's also a dedicated YouTube channel for security now. But the best way to get this show probably is subscribe. Steve has an RSS feed and I have an RSS feed. Pick one and subscribe. That way you'll get it automatically as soon as the show is ready later in the day. Thank you, Steve. Okay, my friend, I will be talking to you the first Tuesday of March. March, in like wow. a lion. Wow. And it is. It's raining. Out like a lamb, we hope. I'll be actually uh, going on a vacation at the end of March, so I'm, I'm looking forward to these days flying <laughs> by. Thanks, Steve. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Hey, buddy. Bye. Do you want to hear about the latest news happening in the tech world from the people who write the article, sometimes from the people who are actually making the news? Well, we got a show for you here at Twit.tv. It's called Tech News Weekly. Me, Jason Howell, and my co-host, Micah Sargent, we talk with some amazing people each and every Thursday on Tech News Weekly. And we share a little bit of our own insights in each of us bringing a story of the week. That's at Twit.tv slash TNW. Subscribe right now. Security now.